thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rav Mike Foyer on Parashat Chukat. Five days, 28 class options, and one memorable summer learning experience. The Pardes Learning Seminar, Summer 2021, is online this year from July 4th to July 8th. Cultivating Courage and Resilience, Chazak Ve'ematz. Be sure to get more information at www.pardes.org.il forward slash seminar. Communal leaders, professionals, lifelong learners, and most importantly, you. Join us today. And now, here is Rav Mike. Parshat Chukat 5781, Real Leaders Fail. You know, it's turned into a bit of a cliche to speak today about our crisis of leadership. And far be it from me to dismiss this as a small tempest in a teacup or to just ride the wave and say, wah, 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 leadership, leadership, leadership. And what I'd like to do today is engage just a little bit why Actually, the crisis in leadership offers us an opportunity to understand what exactly it really takes to lead. Because, as I said with the title, real leaders fail. So Parsha Chukat could in many ways be called the story of a passing of a generation of leadership. I mean, there's many things in there. Death is ever present. And that intersection of death with leadership is actually what brings us to the beginning of this passing of a generation of leaders. It's Miriam's death. We see there in Numbers 20, verses 1 and 2, Ve'evo b'nei Yisrael kol ha'idah mi'bar tzin b'chodesh b'rishon. All of Am Yisrael arrived in a body at the wilderness of Tzin in the first new moon. People stayed at Kadesh. There's an important stop along the way that deserves its own discussion. But for now, it says Miriam died there and was buried there. V'tamot sham Miriam v'tikabay sham v'layamayim leida. And then there was no water for the people and the story rolls on from there. Now, Miriam may not have served the same sort of classic frontal leadership role as her brothers, but her presence was clearly an essential element of Am Yisrael's success in the wilderness. I mean, hence the linkage the verses make between her death and the subsequent lack of water. As Rashi explains in the words of the Midrash, Loya Maim Leida, right after her death it says there was no water for the community. Mikan shana and we learn from here that for 40 years, the entire journey in the wilderness, the well that followed on Israel and provided us with water came in the merit of Miriam. And this, by the by, is its own source of reflection to think about what are the blessings that prominent people bring us that don't come necessarily through their direct actions and their attempts to seize frontal leadership, but rather through the very nature of who they are and what they give to the community within which they exist. So the lack of water that flows from Miriam's death brings on actually the second half of that verse, and they joined against Moshe and Aaron. That's what I actually want to delve into this this uh, this uh, podcast. So that's why I'm giving a little bit of a short shrift to Miriam, because it seems that this breakdown, the people joining together against Moshe and Aaron, is Moshe's last straw. And his struggle with the people in their state of thirst and misery results in the decree that he'll die in the wilderness. This comes, of course, on the heels of many 
previous challenges, and we'll get to it. But before we do, just to round out the frame, that Miriam dies, Moshe loses his role of leadership, even though it's not completely done. There will be a last phase before Yehoshua takes over. And of course, Aaron also dies in our parsha. Actually, not just in our parsha, but in the very same chapter. It says, and Moshe stripped Aaron of his clothes, his vestments, his priestly garb, put them on his son Elazar, and Aaron died there on Hohahar, on the summit of the mountain. And then Moshe and Elazar come back down. And if I were going to pull out just one insight, in the same way that Miriam, we see from the linkage between her death and the disappearance of the well, that some aspect of her leadership came in her very presence, and the blessings that flowed to Am Yisrael from that, so to Aaron, who had obviously a much more classic frontal leadership role. Nonetheless, his great blessing was he was able to hand on that leadership to someone else, who happens to be his son here. But, you know, Abraham Lincoln was famous for saying that a real leader is the type at which when he's gone, nobody really notices because he's devoted himself to creating, he or she has devoted himself to creating a situation in which we run by program and not by personality. That the people, the nation, the business, the institution I leave behind has benefited so profoundly from my leadership that it can go on without me. Something which, without naming names, is a big struggle in the world today. Now, each of these three, Miriam, Moshe, and Aaron, really deserves their own attention and their analysis as a leader. And that's just not possible at the present time. Right now, in terms of this podcast on the Parsh, I'm specifically interested in Moshe's actions. What exactly was it that he had done that caused this passing of his leadership? And it's worth noting in that sense that there is something which unite, well, there are many things really that unite Miriam, Aaron, and Moshe, not the least of which is their family connection. But the most striking in my eyes, at least right now, is how much attention is given to each of their failings. I mean, Aaron, the description of his actions at the Golden Calf is quite lengthy and detailed, and he never really escapes its shadow, nor does Am Yisrael, for that matter. I mean, after all, I mean, the Torah teaches and Rashi explains that we pay with every divine punishment a little bit of our debt for the Golden Calf. So that was big. Miriam, her speaking of Lashon Hara about Moshe, may seem small scale in relation to idol worship performed at the foot of Mount Sinai, but nonetheless... The Torah does tell us to remember what she did. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam. On, the, on your journey after you left Egypt. And the sages tell us that this is one of the six things, which is actually a mitzvah, to recall every day. We're focused on her failure on a daily basis. And then there's the question of Moshe's breakdown that I want to actually discuss shortly. All these together make me want to remind you and myself of an essential truth of Torah. It's an essential truth of Torah. Really, it's an essential truth of life. But the Torah seems to go out of its way to drive it home. And that is that real leaders fail, right? They fail, first of all, because they dare to do. And anyone who goes for it at some point is going to end up on their face. And they fail because they're human. And as human beings, we all fail, just like Kohelet says, over there in the 7th chapter, 20th line, Ki adam ein tzadik yasetov There is not a righteous person in the land who only does good and doesn't err. Now, that could be seen as a depressing analysis of the human condition. Like, what are you going to do? We're all 
failures. But in reality, that's not the way in which it was intended. Certainly not by Kohelet and not how it was understood by the interpretive tradition through the eyes of our sages and other commentators. I mean, Rashi, when he tries to give you the understanding of the verse, says, Gadam ain't tzadik ba'aretz, right? There's no good person on the land, meaning nobody who doesn't fail. Therefore, therefore, you have to always check yourself. Meaning Rashi reads this not as a depressing analysis of the human condition, but rather as a call to action, as a reminder that the very fact that we are flawed and fail is an opportunity. The knowledge that there are no perfect people, and certainly no perfect leaders, is meant to be an inspiration to introspection. It's a call to embrace the flawed aspect of human nature as an opportunity for growth, right? Because if there is no failure, there is no growth. If I were perfect, what exactly would I do with my life? Furthermore, I have to say that in our current world, where the ideals of heroism and nobility of purpose are increasingly dismissed, in fact, often seen to be sort of a cynical claim toward power, and where a false moral purity often unites with a destructive behavior to create outrageously cynical situations, the knowledge that real leaders fail, that in fact, oftentimes their failures are what make them leaders, that real people are flawed and that those flaws are their great opportunities for growth. As Rav Ashlag, the author of the Sulam commentary on the Zohar, says, the locks in life are the keys. The things that hold us back are those which really can open up new horizons. So that knowledge is more important now than ever. And like Rashi said, in order to grow, we have to take the time to examine our actions. And Baruch Hashem, in this case, as it comes around the wheel in the weekly Parsha, once again, we have an opportunity to examine the actions of the greatest leader of Am Yisrael. I mean, you may not agree on that, but certainly I put him in the top three. So as I'm sure you can imagine, there is a diversity, there probably there is a diversity of explanations as to what exactly Moshe did wrong in this episode, right? And by the way, if you want a little bit of bonus points or just some learning lishma, go look at the Or Haim Kodesh. He brings 10 different possible explanations for what exactly it was that Moshe did. So let's just take a quick look at the verses. The people quarreled with Moshe and they said, once again, Oh, that we had died when our brothers perished before God. And they go on, why did you bring us here to die? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Oh, yo, 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 right? And by the way, you shouldn't miss the setup here as we've seen since Parshat Baalotcha that the one thing which a Kaddish Baruch Hu really doesn't tolerate is complaint. This Depth of ingratitude and an almost childish need that things either go right all the time or they don't go at all is a real challenge. But up until now, Moshe has borne it. He's been the one that stood between the people and God and did not allow the divine wrath to flare against them in that wonderful biblical term. So what changes now? Because it says that Moshe and Aaron come away from the congregation to the entrance of the tent of meeting. They fall on their faces. So far, same, same. God appears and says, listen, I got a solution. Take Aaron, take the rod that you've been doing all these miracles with, bring the people together and strike, and sorry, before their eyes, order the rock to yield its water. So far, so good. Moshe takes the rod, brings the people, he and Aaron go. Then he says his famous line. He says, listen, you rebels. Shall we get water for you out of this rock? And he raises his hand and he strikes the rock. 
twice. And out comes copious water. Everybody's really happy and their beasts drink. But how does God respond? Because you did not believe in me, have faith in me, didn't trust me enough to sanctify me, to affirm my sanctity in the sight of all of Am Yisrael, right? Therefore, you're not going to breed this people, sorry, bring this people into the land that I have promised. Now, there's much in this Parsha, and we're not going to be able to plumb it all, although I highly encourage you to look in on your own to this question of what it would have looked like to sanctify God, and why specifically speaking to the rock would have done such a thing. I'll give you a hint. Rashi brings an insight on what the kal v'chomer, the a fortiori argument the people would have drawn if they had seen Moshe speak to the rock would be. There's a lot to be said there, right? Se'ulamed, as we say. Go check it out. For now, I want to bring two insights on what exactly it was that Moshe did wrong. Was it striking the rock? Was it yelling at the people? Two insights from two of the great commentators of our tradition. One, practical, and the other, let's call it a little bit more broad-range philosophical, both of which offer us lessons not only for what we can take from the failure of our greatest leader into our own lives, but also an insight, perhaps, of how we ourselves might take a posture of leadership in trying to move our people forward. So the first comes from one of the works of the Rambam, Rav Moshe Maimon, right, Maimonides. It's a work which is not amongst his best known, called Shmona Prakim, the eight chapters. It's the Rambam's introduction to the ethics of our fathers. And in this introduction, he states very clearly that these aren't chidushim, they're not Rambam's own inventions of ideas, but rather are a collection that he's gleaned from the words of the sages and the opinions of other scholars, like Pirkei Avot itself, just like Ethics of Our Fathers. It's the Rambam's attempt to understand the depths of the human condition and to give us some tools of exactly how to engage them. And there in the midst of the fourth chapter, Rambam speaks about a very important posture in what I'll call behavioral modification. You know, in my work as a counselor, I often work with people on how do I go from an image I have of myself to effective behaviors that can make that real in the world. And here he gives us a very important insight. What's he saying? He says, a, a moral man, says the translator here, which I like, I think, will constantly examine their actions, weigh their deeds, and daily investigate their psychic condition. And if at any time this person finds their soul deviating to one extreme or another, right, that's Rambam's devotion to the golden mean, they will immediately hasten to apply the proper remedy. And here's the key, and not suffer an, suffer an evil aptitude to acquire strength by constant repetition of that evil action which it occasioned. So on one level, what he's telling us is really the same thing that Rashi said, that recognizing that none of us are perfect necessitates a posture of constant introspection. Fine, good, and always worth repeating. But there's another level which is important and relates directly to our question of what it was that Moshe did wrong. And why, by the way, this was the straw that broke the camel's back in his inability to lead the people into the land. Rambam says that don't allow an evil aptitude to acquire strength, meaning in addition to recognizing that we all have flaws, and in addition to, me, to recognizing that this necessitates a constant vigilance in relationship to our own behavior, it also means we have to recognize that our flaws and the challenges we face and the negative behaviors that flow from them leave sediment in our life. 
every time I get angry, I may control my behavior, but the anger doesn't just disappear. I see this a lot in couples work. There's a sediment that builds up in life. And if we're not careful, not just to change our behavior, but to sweep away, away that sediment, to proactively ensure that it doesn't accumulate, then we might find that despite our ability to control our behavior, the pressure which is resting upon this negative aspect of selfhood is building. And here, the Rambam goes on to say that the philosophers, Rambam goes on to say that since it's impossible for any man to be free from all faults, then this is an absolute necessity, not just for progress, but really for survival in life. And he brings the example of Moshe. He says that God said to our teacher Moshe, because you haven't trusted me to sanctify me, you rebelled against my order, etc. All this, says the Rambam, happened through the sin, of, so although the sin of Moses consisted merely in that he departed from the moral mean of patience to the extreme of wrath. Meaning, what did Moshe do? What was his sin, says the Rambam? His sin was anger. The Rambam explains why um, God judges the tzadikim kechuta sarah. He's very exacting with the righteous, and in particular, this was a public act, and the people were going to draw conclusions and think, God forbid, that God was also angry. Fine. But the deepest insight, actually, is what the Rambam offers by coupling his explanation of Moshe's sin with his general exploration of the necessity not only to check myself constantly, but to realize that there's a cumulative effect to my negative behaviors. What he essentially explains is it's not that Moshe got angry all at once. It's that Moshe didn't do the real work of, as he says, Ashuv the Kavanati. I'm going to go back to my original point. Right? A person has to be discriminate regarding their action, directing them constantly. I mean, Moshe lost track of the fact that his anger was cumulative. Back in Baalotcha, or even earlier at the edge of the sea, or as we've seen many times, the people said, we want to go back, why did you take us here, etc., etc., the rebellion of Korach. And every time Moshe faced them down, and every time he turned to God, but Moshe failed to look in and to see that there was a little bit of anger that he was holding on to each time this happened that he hadn't let go. And so when this final event came, he himself was surprised to find that his anger was beyond control. And as the Rambam says at the end of this chapter, this is the way of serving God, the most acceptable way, which the sages had in mind when they wrote, right, one who orders their course aright is worthy of seeing the salvation of God, as it teaches in Tehillim, the sam derech literally means the one who orders their course aright, I will show the salvation of God. The Rambam says, don't read it as one who orders their derech. What's sham? He says shuma means a weighing and evaluation. And that's what he's trying to explain here. It's not enough just to know your flaw. It's not even enough to check your behaviors. You have to actually look within and see the sediment of anger, of sadness, of fear, the emotive burden which is left behind by our universally shared flawed nature, right? And this, of course, on a certain level also explains why the Rambam couldn't take the people into the land because the challenges which they would face and the fact that God was going to retreat from immediate advocacy and interaction meant that there was an even deeper need to start with a clean slate. The people needed someone who could start together with them. And Moshe, with all his greatness, with all the role that he had played, he bore the burden from the wilderness and therefore, in many ways, simply 
couldn't take them in. Now, I know we're running on one last thought that I wanted to articulate further, but you can check it yourself. It has to do with the comments of the Gur Aryeh. Gur Aryeh was written by the Maharal. The Maharal of Prague was a great sage of the late, let's think about that, late 16th, early 17th century. He dies in 1609, of course, of Prague, the famous master of the Golem. And his Gur Aryeh is a commentary, it's a super commentary, really, on Rashi, on the Parsha. And when he comments on Rashi's comments here on Bamidbar, chapter 20, line 12, he says the following, Duh, no. Right, this chet that it says, You didn't have faith in me to sanctify me. And he focuses on this question of emuna. Okay, fine, so they hit the rock twice. What's the big deal, says the Maharal? He says, no. In reality, that their sin was because they lost faith. They're sorry, I'll say it differently. The fact that they struck the rock twice, despite the fact that God promised a miracle, was itself the loss of faith, and their loss of faith flowed from anger, right? Meaning, on some level, yes, the sin is the same, anger, but the key is he's giving you an understanding of the verse, you didn't believe in me? How do we lose faith because of anger? So the Maharal says the following astounding insight, and I'll end our discussion with this. He says, one who fulfills God's commandments in an angry way, as Moshe did by saying, you know, Shimuna Morim, especially when a miracle is being done, essentially has no faith. Why? Because faith means one trusts in God and feels only joy. Meaning of faith is that one believes in God, says the Maral, trusts in God, and with that trust comes joy. Where there is anger, he says, there is no faith. That joy, simcha, is the emotive experience of real trust in God. And the reality is we all struggle with anger, but sometimes we don't see how it disconnects us from the very source of life to which we're attempting to cling. And I think that this is a note worth ending on in terms of all the challenges that lead, that sorry, lie before us and that really call for leadership. Don't lose faith. And not losing faith doesn't mean you'll never get angry. It means checking that anger, releasing the sediment that comes with it and clinging passionately and faithfully to a state of joy. May we all be blessed to be leaders in our own lives and the lives of peoples around us, to check ourselves on a regular basis and to really live a life of faithful joy. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify or visit us at elmod.pardes.org for the latest episodes of Pardes from Jerusalem. Be sure to tune in next week as Rabbi Michael Hatton discusses Parashat Balak. Thanks for listening.